I'm Don Coscarelli, and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben. It's another week. It's another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Hey, Ben Rock, tell people who you are. I'm Ben Rock. <laughs> I'm I'm a, a raconteur. I'm a director and uh, lately I've been doing a lot of writing. You can uh, find my stuff at benrockonline.com. You can see uh, some of the work that I've done. Uh, I did a podcast called Video Palace somewhat recently, which spawned a book spinoff, which is the book we just gave away, the Video Palace in Search of the Eyeless Man. Done some films, done some second unit done a bunch of stuff also i co-host a cinematography podcast don't know if you've heard of it but i think it's pretty good i think it's got legs how about yourself Ilya? tell people about you oh me uh man's man ladies man man about town uh, uh <laughs> <laughs> i don't remember which movie i stole that from but it's uh it's something anyway when i'm not hosting this podcast i run a camera shop in burbank california called hot rod cameras which we specialize in selling equipment to the motion picture and television industry if uh you need gear uh, we're also the sponsor of this podcast so please find us there hey i have a, a random update uh while i'm talking to you i am goofing around with my i'm not currently while i'm while i'm talking to you but i'm actually looking at a render progress of my short end from last week swarms uh which i uh it took me a minute because it was a project from like 2015 so I had to kind of go back into 2015 head and reconnect a million assets and I have a different computer than I had back then and you know whatever but I finally got everything going brought swarms into After Effects and I have to say I think swarms is an amazing product if like I did you need to add bugs to stuff it's pretty sweet I can't wait to see how you use it yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 going to be a bit of work, but I'm I'm trying to maybe hopefully have this episode rebuilt by Halloween so that I can uh, have a cheesy excuse to force people to watch Twenty Seconds to Live. Watch my stuff, everybody. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, hey, hey Ben, pick a number between uh, one and seven. Uh, I'm going to go with four. Okay, four, uh, four. Uh, you, this random number that you just chose means that uh, JF. Le Shop, I think is how it's pronounced. Uh, forgive me if it's wrong, uh, Mr. Le Shop, but uh, you're the winner of the new book from... Whoa! Uh, the <laughs> that's right. book. Yeah, that's right. The, the book giveaway. Uh, you are the fourth comment here on our, uh, our video. Ben picked four. So voila. Please get in touch with us. Uh, please send us an email. I don't seem to be able to find an email from you on your uh, about page on youtube but uh, you're the winner of the book so please uh, send a message to email at cam noir and we'll make sure to get that to you hey and speaking about book giveaways if yes. i'm not mistaken we have a, yet another book to give away we do as a matter of fact uh I, I'm, and, and I'm it relates to it relates directly to tonight's guest don coscarelli uh it, it does it is a copy of his book from, that uh, came out uh, not too long ago. And if I'm not mistaken, the title of that book is True Indie, Life and Death in Filmmaking. And uh, he talks about it a bit in our upcoming interview, which uh, if you're listening to this episode, you you really came here to hear that. So so what we're going to do uh, for, for this giveaway is we're going to have a video up on YouTube on the Cinematography Podcast YouTube channel. And all you have to do is subscribe to the show 
and then comment and we'll probably do something similar uh to this one where but hopefully we'll have you know maybe a few more entries maybe it'll be 100 entries and i'll say ben pick a number between one and 100 and then uh you'll pick a number and then we'll we'll give away a book if you like horror movies if you like indie filmmaking if you like don coscarelli and hopefully you like all three of those things definitely enter this uh the book is awesome don is awesome and uh i i I can't wait for people to hear this interview just because he's he's an amazing talent he's been making films uh since he was 19 when he made his first feature i thought the only person who ever did that was sam raimi but apparently don coscarelli also made a feature when he was 19 Werner herzog probably made one when he was six but uh yes quite 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 possibly it, it seems like that guy got started uh maybe in utero so he actually has made two feature films since i started this sentence <laughs> uh all right ben what what are we uh what are we talking about this week on our close focus segment on our george Foyt close focus segment that's the one yes so our close focus this week we wanted to talk about the death the untimely death of quibi which i feel like quibi was something that people were predicting the death of two years ago when people were just talking about it getting going now i should say in full disclosure i actually pitched a project to quibi before they launched and i subscribed to quibi and i checked out some of their content it was pretty good and uh and it was top notch top flight their whole idea was uh quibi is short for quick bites And so as someone who has made, as I never stop talking about on this podcast, a web series called 20 Seconds to Live, something I'm very proud of. Those were all very short episodes. I think our longest one, our Lawrence of Arabia episode, if you will, was about three and a half minutes long. Our shortest was like 130. Quibi's episodes were in the six to eight minute range, and they had created an interesting technology that I thought was promising for people watching stuff on smartphones. It's all designed to be watched on smartphones. So on smartphones, you got your portrait and your landscape mode, basically. And, you know, YouTube, most YouTube videos are intended to be watched in landscape mode. So that's holding it horizontally. Things like Snapchat, who make a lot of their own original content, were encouraging people, or not encouraging, but all their content is available in uh, portrait mode, vertical. So what Quibi was doing was, I believe they were shooting everything in like 8K or some ridiculously high uh, resolution, so that when you were watching your material on there, if you were watching it in landscape mode and you turned your phone vertically it would reorient your show and you could watch it either way that was part of the idea that was part of the technology now it was created by jeffrey katzenberg who uh when he ran disney famously said if you don't come into work on saturday don't bother coming into work on sunday that's an actual quote (laughs) um uh, it was and, also co-founded by Meg Whitman, uh, former CEO of, of Hewitt Packard. And someone and, who tried to run for the governor of California. That's true. Uh, and, it, and it raised uh, a fair bit of money in uh, venture In the capital. billions. It raised yeah. billions. It was uh, well widely heralded. Uh, there was a lot of people talking about it. They hired top flight talent to make their shorts. And still, all the, the greatest talent in, in shorts in the world couldn't keep Quibi from uh, closing. And I, I am not happy about this. I'm, I'm sad to see them go. Not because no, I, I, w- I think it's terrible. It's a lot of content. A lot of uh, talented people made it. A lot of people put their heart and souls into it. You know, people went in and pitched them just like any other network, pitched them ideas for shows. They got stars to be in their stuff. It wasn't like uh, six goofwads in, in, in their iPhone making stuff. It was it was for real. Oh, and, and, and to be clear, though, I'm not sad for the millionaire billionaires who 
baby this was that that failed. I'm sad for the creators and the fact that there's one less place out there to sell your products, uh, to sell your shows, one less marketplace essentially for uh, for people out there, especially someone who wanted to really capitalize on sort of a web series format, with which would be short episodes and serialized content, and also it was available to watch like on your streaming TV and services and stuff like that. I, we, you, for a while there, uh, when Emmy Awards, uh, we got the screening links to Quibi, so we could go look at this Quibi stuff on a, on a TV screen, and you know the production value was totally there. But clearly, the subscriber base, the people shelling out money every month, it didn't show up. And my thinking was is that Quibi was going to do a deal with like a cell phone carrier. They're going to do something like with like a Verizon. You you know you sign up for Verizon and you get three months of Quibi. And I don't remember ever seeing them do something like that. But just immediately then Quibi could have had access to like 100 million subscribers or something like that. And then they could have, uh, in theory, sold that company because they had all these subscribers. They would have had all this extra value. But but no, it it didn't it didn't go down that way. And, uh, you know, the pandemic's certainly been blamed. uh, But uh, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's uh, it's but I feel like I mean, look, I, I haven't looked at their financials or viewing habits or whatever. But I feel like how do you really how do you realistically blame the pandemic when now you have the most captive audience on earth and everyone has this phone in their pocket, you know, I, like, I, I can tell, I can tell you how it's like that. Cause that is a new startup thing that people don't really know. And there's a ton of people captive with all these other, uh, you know, viewing options at their disposal where, where if, if people were living their life and really on the go, the whole idea behind Quibi was it's going to be an on the go thing. Like, Oh, I've got 10 minutes here. I've got five minutes here. I'm going to watch these things. That didn't happen. People had mm. lots of time. They were sitting on their couch. They had lots of time sitting in a park with a mask on. I so. think a lot of people have experimented with this kind of format. And I'm not saying it's not viable. I mean, if I thought it wasn't viable, I wouldn't have bothered with 20 Seconds to Live. And I've gone to uh, numerous web fests with 20 Seconds to Live. And those are basically just film festivals entirely for web series. So the ones that get into those are often the ones that ha- have the better production value or, you know, whatever. You know, they're, they're really well made. It's, it's curated. And so I've seen some pretty amazing stuff at the WebFest level. And Quibi was, you know, a step beyond that. So, you know, WebFests are people like you and me or maybe people with access to some outside financing trying to build an audience. And I think that there's uh, maybe it's a fool's errand, maybe it's a noble fool's errand of people saying like, hey, we like making movies and TV shows that look like movies and TV shows. We like that aesthetic as opposed to looking like YouTube. As opposed to YouTube, as opposed to a video of somebody, you know, unboxing a bunch of Disney toys and filming themselves and, and getting, you know, making, you know, millions of dollars doing that or people filming themselves playing video games or any of the things that that really get the most traction on a YouTube or a Snapchat kind of a place. And, you know, in the middle of all this, too, by the way, TikTok, uh, I mean, I know TikTok was around before Quibi launched, but TikTok is having no problem gathering eyeballs. And I feel like it's gathering eyeballs where just a few years ago, Vine failed. And TikTok is sort of just doing what Vine did. I mean, it's it's doing it a little different. It's it's next generation of that kind of an idea, but it's not an insanely different idea. Yeah. So to me, it's like Quibi maybe is uh, one of those things where like as a lover of old media that I am, I want to see stuff like Quibi work because Quibi is old media trying to find a purchase in a new media environment, but the new media people aren't aren't really biting on it you're an, a lover of old media does that mean you're a fan of the penny arcade 
Yeah. <laughs> you like looking the into cine- a little tube and turning a crank and little- I like the cinematograph. The cinematograph. Big fan <laughs> of the cin- cinematograph. Yeah. yeah. But um, I, I saw an Edward Moybridge uh, in one of those cinematographs there. So it was it was very exciting. I was like, man, that horse really is going to gallop like a motherfucker. <laughs> so um, anyway, but yeah, I mean, like, I, I mean, I, I think it's a bummer that Quibi is dying. I'm hoping that that content finds another home. I mean, just a few years ago, remember, YouTube was trying to, to do something like this with YouTube Red. And that didn't work. They, they closed that down. They closed that shit down. I actually interviewed to direct a movie that was being made for YouTube Red. Didn't get the gig. I was a really weird choice for it, so I, I'm, I'm not grousing about that. But, uh, but I remember paying a lot more attention to YouTube Red after that. But, you know, if you recall, Cobra Kai, the Karate Kid spinoff series, premiered on YouTube Red. Now it has migrated over to Netflix. And getting, so maybe, and getting new seasons. Yeah, getting orders for more episodes. Yeah. So, so it's possible that if, you know, the people who made the shows for Quibi have enough material there. The, the problem is that if you take it to Netflix, Netflix isn't going to want to make six-minute episodes. And my guess is if you take all your episodes and stitch them together, it's not going to feel like a longer episode. It's going to feel like six episodes stitched together. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe a re-edit and a re-sound mix and, you know, really try and make it, you know, you could make the six, eight minute chunks feel like acts of a longer episode. I don't know. Well, uh, Variety is actually reporting that the creators who put together the uh, full length versions of the projects that got chopped up and shown on Quibi will actually be getting the rights back after two years. And they can then uh, try to sell it globally. The short format isn't going to be available to them for like seven years or something like that. But after two years, they get the option to try to see if someone else will pick it up. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, you know, let's not declare Quibi completely dead yet. They they may yet figure a way to reorganize and re-come out some other way and whatever. But I, I, I do feel like trying to create episodes of TV shows that feel like primetime television, which is what they're doing, maybe is barking up the wrong tree when you're trying to go after the youth market, which is primarily who's going to watch something on their phone. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. Uh, hey, well, let's get to the interview with uh, Don Coscarelli. Here we go. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So I'm dying to talk to you on the Beastmaster. I've seen the Beastmaster a million times because, again, <laughs> my dad took me to see it in the theater. And I, oh, wow. Uh, hey, he had good taste. <laughs> so that movie was what, like 1981 or 82, something? 82. 82. Yeah. So I would have been 11 yeah. years old. Uh, anyway, so he took me to see it in the theater. Scared the crap out of me, especially those creatures that like wrap their arms around you and, and dissolve your whole body. Love that stuff. And then, of course, I saw it a zillion times on cable. But I wasn't aware. I, I never looked into it until we were talking about trying to find it, that it was shot by John Alcott, who, yeah. you know, shot some pretty huge stuff. Like he shot a lot of Kubrick movies. He shot a Clockwork Orange. He also shot a movie that no one has ever heard of but and is a comedy but terrified me as a little kid, probably more than any horror movie called Who is Killing the Great Chefs of Europe. I don't know I don't know why it scared me as much as it did, but as a little kid I saw it on cable and there's like a shot of a guy's arm falling out of an oven and there was just it's it's a sight gag, but it, it, it creeped the shit out of me. But anyway, can you talk about working with uh somebody like him? Obviously we don't uh, John Alcott passed away in nineteen eighty six, I believe yeah yeah um, a terrible loss yeah, yeah listen he was a great man and a, you know obviously won the academy award for maybe the most amazingly shot movie of all time which is barry linden and yes. if you re, if you revisit the movie because that was back i guess he always did it but i'll say back in the day when kubrick 
would actually have, you know, an army of English and French soldiers, and they would wait for the clouds to come in to get the right lighting and then shoot the <laughs> battle scenes. So, uh, and it was also the, the film that uh, uh, John working with Cinema Products, I think they developed this 0.7, I don't know if it was an F-stop or a T-stop lens so that they could shoot all these uh, grand sequences in candlelight. It was like and a so NASA really, satellite lens or something crazy, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it was right. It was from some sort of NASA thing that they adapted. And then in uh, and, and, and the, wow, the movie, it's, it holds up and looks fantastic today. But here was the thing. So I made phantasm and you know like an idiot i thought i gotta do something big after it you know instead of just being <laughs> smart and doing another genre picture i thought well i want to go back and do something like those great uh hercules and hercules unchained starring steve reeves i love those the, those <laughs> movies the, the they called them the sword and sandal movies and so uh, with my partner, Paul, we co-wrote the script uh, based on a sci-fi novel and it became The Beastmaster. So I was 26 years old and I had shot Fant. I had, I had filmed all of my movies, actually. My first three features, I was the cinematographer, co-cinematographer on that. Oh, wow. You know, when you're a, a DP operator, it's a lot of freaking physical work. I mean, you're, especially in the old days of film where you're pushing these cameras around and you're doing the dolly moves and you've got to do this. And then uh, tying in director and, and trying to direct and all that, a very difficult job. And so this movie was going to be big, although let me qualify that by saying it was still a low, Beastmaster was a low budget indie film. Yeah. And at the time, we were too embarrassed to talk about the budget. And so there there's numbers saying that we'd spent $9 million and it was an epic. Okay. We spent about four and a half to $5 million on that movie back in 1982, which was not a lot of money if you go back and look at it in terms of the horses and the animals and the stunts and all of that stuff. So I, I, there was no question that I needed to hire a uh, cinematographer. And a producer friend mentioned that he was working with John Alcott up in Canada on a horror film called Terror Train. And yeah. like the alarm bells went off in my head. I'm thinking, well, if he's working in Canada on that, maybe we could get him. And so we made an outreach. And the timing was just perfect because Alcott wanted to relocate to Los Angeles and bring his entire family and, and live in Southern California and become a you know, a Hollywood DP, basically, <laughs> which was great. And so, you know, we met with him, just a super nice, gentle man, very intelligent, very soft-spoken, but steel spine, iron-willed. In any case, the sad part about it is, is that, you know, the process of making, you know, to get the larger numbers of millions, sometimes you really have to sell your soul. And mm. I really did on the Beastmaster because the financial partners I got involved with, there was so much creative interference on the making of the movie. And uh, it ended up, you know, it was a low budget movie, but we maximized everything to get shooting days because that's, you know, to aspiring filmmakers out that it's you know, out there. That's the key. I mean, the more days of shooting that you can have, the better the movie you, you make, period, the end. There's, that's all there is to it. And uh, we managed to organize the budget. So we got 72 shooting days. But oh unfortunately... God. It was 12 six-day weeks. Oh, <laughs> so man. it was, uh, anyway, 
that what I, that that takes me around to the point was is that I rarely and I kick myself now. I rarely got to talk about with Alcott about his uh, experiences working with Stanley. I mean, oh, wow. basically, he would talk about. I would I'd ask him, you know, I would frequently your other crew member would go. John, why are you out here on this movie? You know, working with him, and uh, he would basically <laughs> say he he just got tired of waiting for waiting around for Stanley because there was so much downtime and so much waiting always between projects and even during projects. You know, they build hiatuses in and what have you, and I think he wanted a little more uh, high octane career, a little more action, and it was a, it was a smart move. But uh, to, the the one last. Uh, thing I could say about John Alcott was, uh, what a great stand-up guy, because uh, I think it was day three of the Beastmaster, the powers that be started thinking about firing me, because they had this idea in their head that I could not direct action. And I, kept, I had to defend myself and go, hey, I had action in Phantasm. I, I, I put together those sequences, you know, and it, they didn't listen to me. But anyway, um, Alcott found out that uh, they were interviewing other directors, actually. And oh, wow. the, guy had, the guy had moved his family out to Southern California and, you know, leased a house and changed his whole life. And he just let it be known that if Don went, he would go. And they didn't fire me. And... You know, thank you, John. Uh, that's amazing. That's great to hear. We were approached by a company called Vinegar Syndrome that wanted to do a restoration of the Beastmaster, which was really exciting because they were, uh, you know, wanted to do a, you know, a complete restoration from the best material possible. So my uh, producer and co-writer, Paul Pepperman, and I decided to try to uh, track down the best element we had. Because, you know, I had done a restoration of Phantasm a few years ago. I've seen it. Uh, it looks amazing. Yeah, it's under the auspices of J.J. Abrams was kind enough to let us use his system over there, that <laughs> robot. It was great. It was like unlimited color correction time, which is for a filmmaker, unlimited color correction time <laughs> in like a full-on suite, right? But the whole challenge was is I would have to go over there off hours. And there was this great guy named Juan Cabrera, who was the colorist. And uh, so I'd get this phone call like, uh, Juan's available from seven till midnight. Come over tonight. You know, and I could get four hours yeah. with them. And this went on for several months. And we did a, a fabulous job, or he did, with uh, Phantasm. And it I saw what the, po what the possibility is, especially going back to the original camera negative. Uh, so with Beastmaster and Vinegar Syndrome, we wanted to get find that original camera negative. And um, the, long, the short story of it, and you can read all about it in whereisthebeastmaster.com. And I'm afraid we've pretty much given up that the, the Beastmaster original camera negative is gone. Uh, but it was moved out of a, 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 a decent quality vault by an affiliate of the rights holder and put into his garage in the valley. And if anybody knows about film preservation, you know, putting a, <laughs> a 35 millimeter negative in the valley in the summer, you know, it's horrible because, yeah. you know, the, I think the specs are at the best vault that I keep stuff at. It's 
41 degrees Fahrenheit, 25% humidity. Yeah. And you know that it can get a, over 100 degrees in a garage in the valley. It so was, I'm thinking that- It was 118 degrees in the valley like two weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, bottom line is we figured it was probably destroyed there. Oh, but uh, then, then the affiliate, he uh, moved and forgot where the negative was. And supposedly maybe it was left in the garage. And Paul and I went actually over there to try to knock on the door. And in the interim, the new owner had put this like eight foot hall fence around and there was no doorbell. And we were like jumping and yelling. We never could talk to the people. Oh, my God. But so we, we got really uh, frustrated and started this website called whereisthebeastmaster.com and check it out. There's a lot of connections to uh, film archives and, and, and background stuff on film preservation there. Uh, but through this process, it turned out that at Warner Brothers in the vaults there, they had a perfect interpositive, oh, which sweet. was struck, struck off the original camera negative back in the day and then put in the vault and never used. And so that's the item that they're using. And man, it looks gorgeous. The, the quality of uh, you know, film restoration, when you can go back to original materials now, uh, it really, it, like it reminds me, I'm jumping around, but when we shot Phantasm, we had this almost an obsession, or I did anyway, that we had to get the best quality uh, camera possible. And we made the sweetheart deal with Panavision, who gave us one of their state-of-the-art Panaflex cameras at the time for really wow. cheap. And we had the Panavision lenses and even a modified Airy 2C that we could use their lenses in. Then when I saw that many decades later in color correction, I went, ah, I knew what I was doing in getting that good camera, good lenses, <laughs> and then preserving the negative because it really it was it's a great way to capture media, thirty five millimeter film when it's properly uh, taken care of. So for our listeners who came up during the digital era, could you explain what an inner positive is? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, well, there was a printing process in uh, to make a release prints back in the day. And so you'd shoot your film on a 35 millimeter camera negative, which would then be edited and the negative would be cut. And then uh, the first element struck off of it would be an interpositive. Because for some reason, don't ask me why, because I don't know all the photochemical science, but they would make, you would have your original negative, then they would need to make a positive so then they could make a internegative to then make release prints because you yeah. were going to run the internegative through the printer a lot and it, that would get damaged. And so this way you could use the inner positive to create, create multiple inner negatives. But the bottom line was it meant that even in theaters, you know, which we all look as theater is the best ex exhibition, you were looking at something that was one, two, at least three generations down from the original camera negative. Yeah. So that was the interesting part of that. But but an inner positive would differ from, say, a release print in that it's, is it not color timed? Um, no, it's definitely color timed. No, you mm -hmm. would do a, because so, so here's the process that you bring it back. It was crazy times back then. Uh, the, the control was so limited. I mean, it's so fantastic to go into a color suite today, you know, with a Da Vinci system or a Mystica system or one of these yeah. uh, uh, process that you have so much control over your film. But back then it was just sitting in a room and you, you would have a guy called a color timer and he would strike what was called a, I guess it was an answer print. So he would look at the negative on this machine called a densitometer. And uh, on every shot, they would change the color settings in the optical printer. So it was, you know, as the film went through it, so the 
the 35 negative would go through the printer and they'd make this answer print. You'd go sit in a room with the uh, color timer and or color grader, as they called it in the UK, and he would he'd go, oh, that shot's too yellow. Oh, that shot's too green. Oh, that that's too dark. You know, like that. Yeah. It, it, the, you know, he'd be taking notes and he missed a lot of stuff. And they'd usually give you two or three passes like that. So you'd have this timing, your timing lights set in, and then they would make an IP interpositive which was pretty much a, you know, a, a timed version, that that became sort of your master that then they could make the internegatives. And frequently back when they made film to tape, they would use the interpositive as your main material. So it was an arcane system. And it, you know, it was really interesting for me, which is when I came up and started making movies in the, in the mid to late 70s, and through the mid to late 90s, I was making movies the same way uh, Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin were making movies. I mean, it was so we had color, but it wasn't that much different. We had this film running through a camera, and it had to be exposed correctly, and you had all these weird printing processes. But then, you know, in the 2000s, my God, it just turned so quickly. And, you know, here we are today. It's not that long ago. It's maybe 12, 14 years ago. And I meet so many people that never shot anything on film now. Well, it's funny yeah. because like post all went digital, you know, in the in the 90s, in the aughts. Yes. And, yes. and, then, and then it was literally just cameras catching up with post. Yeah. So yeah. I, I kind of want to uh, back up a little bit and just kind of talk about your career in general, if you have a few sure. minutes, because I don't think I've seen every single single one of your movies, but I've seen the ones that are available to be seen. And I've seen most of them multiple times, including, you know, uh, Bubba Hotep and John Dies at uh -huh. the End. Phantasm, Phantasm 2 I saw in the theater. I was too young to see oh, the first right. Phantasm in theater. Uh, cool. So I have a general unified field theory of, of <laughs> the story you tell. And Okay. <laughs> all right. So, uh, and, I, and, I've, and I've, I've pitched Listen, this to... I, 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 Ben, I want to hear it because so often people ask me questions about my career and I have no... I, I, my career, I don't know. I made a few movies and they are what they are. That's the only insight I have to them. Okay, so this is my opinion, again, having uh, kind of studied your stuff. And by the way, we've, we've talked to two of your DPs, and I've run this by both of them. So uh, that was Chris Komen and Mike Giolakis. Oh, yeah, they're both great. And so the theory is that there is another world. It's terrifying and dangerous, but also ridiculous at the same time. <laughs> and I feel like that, that kind of like encapsulates, I mean, like, it, it, because a lot of what you do kind of walks the line between horror and comedy, which is very hard to do. I mean, I feel like fan, the first Phantasm is more of a straight up horror movie and uh, Beastmaster is, is, is like that sword and sandal kind of, kind of a thing. But especially as, as your career has progressed, stuff like Bubba Hotep, John Dies at the End. And John Dies at the End, I have seen dozens of times. Saw it in the theater twice. Oh, man, that's so wonderful. No, no, I'm I'm a giant fan. Can you talk about like is I mean it might just be me describing your your creative sensibility or is, I don't know if, if any artist if there's an intentionality that goes that deep like I'm going to tell a story like this but what is it about those stories that that attracts you? Well, you know, you 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 really made me spark something which is that uh possibly the number one redeeming quality of this life that we lead as uh, these sentient uh, homo sapiens is this capacity for humor. What it made me really immediately spark to, because in the most horrifying times in your life, there are moments of levity. Obviously, you got to embrace them. Because what it what it made me flash back to is I had this 
not to get too personal, but I had this in the 80s, this freaky health problem that required exploratory surgery. And I was over at Cedars Sinai and waiting for the gurney to come take me down to the operating room. And I look out the back wind out the window and I see, can see down into the behind the hospital there. And I see this hearse pulling up. And I just <laughs> burst into laughter because I thought, well, number one, I thought, oh, that's, you know, I could be going in that thing. Things went wrong. But then the other thought, you know, having been around death with the making of Phantasm, you know, it almost thought, oh, well, the tall man's here and he's going to take care of me, you know. So, uh, <laughs> but the point being is that humor is so important and um, I just can't help but finding things that are funny and absurd in life. And when you want to get to talking about John Dies at the end, when I read David Wong's book, it was just like, it was right up my alley and I just loved it. Well, let's let's talk about John Dies at the end, because I sure. think it's obviously I think it's an underappreciated movie because I think everybody should see it. It's a horror movie, but it is hilariously funny and it has some great moments of tension and, and terror and a ton of laugh out loud moments. And when we find out when we get to the other world, when we see what the other world is, it is, like I said, simultaneously terrifying and kind of ridiculous and intentionally so absurd, maybe is a better word to describe it. But it is ridiculous. It's funny. And I think horror comedy is a really tough genre to get right. It, 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 horror, horror comedy, you go too horrific, it becomes morbid and you can't laugh at it. You go too funny and it takes all the stakes out of it and you can't be scared by it. And I, I don't know if there's a secret that you have, but like in a movie like John Dies at the End, how did you go about kind of balancing both of those? Well, first off, it was all there in the book. And, um, you know, it was just a, a function of trying to make the action moments real and visceral. And at the same time, getting those deadpan lines to play. I, yeah. Uh, 100% you got to give give to Chase Williamson, Rob Mays, Paul Giamatti, Clancy Brown, Doug Jones, uh, Ty Bennett, Glenn Turman. These guys all were able to, some, some played it perfectly straight. Although, like, you know, the scene with Glenn Turman, the cop, where he corners Dave at the Rastafarian's trailer. I'm getting really into the weeds here. And uh, he's going to murder Dave. He's a cop. He's going to yeah. murder the character of Dave in cold blood. He's got his gun out on him. And he's got this can of gasoline. And he makes this this reference where he goes, You're, you may be wondering why I'm holding this here ga can of gasoline. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and and. Uh, we played it pretty straight and wow in the audience they just went you know the the laughter was insane but anyway it all comes from uh David Wong, brilliant writer, who's who. By the way, for anybody who's who likes the movie, uh, he's got two sequel books in the stores and a, a third and maybe a fourth in the pipeline. So there's oh, lots I, of. John I knew about this book is full of spiders. I didn't know that there was another one after that. Yeah, it's called "What the Hell Did I Just Read," and it may be even better. It's, it, it's great stuff. He's really talented. But uh, anyway, bringing John dies at the end back around to why we're here talking about cinematography. So look, hey, may, you know, I work with Alcott and some of the others that you mentioned, but uh, maybe my favorite cinematographer, and I'm not going to say that, I, uh, and I love Mike Giolakis, but the guy who got Mike Giolakis the job, his name was uh, Roberto Quezada, mm -hmm. and Roberto worked on Phantasm as a camera assistant and immediately got a battle 
field promotion at Gaffer. And he was so focused on lighting and really helped me to get the visual style of Phantasm. But, you know, I guess working in the industry just wasn't, he did, he, he, he photographed a couple other movies, but then left and he was in the internet for a while and other things like that. But he always had his finger in it. Whenever he was working on, you know, something that involved uh, commercials or whatever, he'd meet young filmmakers and gaffers. And I told him, well, I'm making John Dies at the end. He said, oh, you got to talk to this guy, Mike Giolakis. I, I was on a commercial shoot and I talked to him. He's a gaffer. He's a really sharp guy. And so I, I met with Mike and what a wonderful guy. And let me just explain to you in a nutshell why not just creatively, but to make that movie what it was. Because, you know, we had a very tiny budget on John Dies at the end. But again, super big ambitions to try to make all of the stuff that came out of the book real. And um, Mike, being a gaffer, got us a great deal at Cinelease for a truck loaded with grip and lighting. And mm -hmm. uh, two days before shooting, he went himself and picked up the truck he drove it to our warehouse down in the city of Paramount down near Southgate. And oh, he wow. completely unloaded the truck and pre-lit the entire set by himself on like a Saturday and Sunday. So that Monday we were ready to go. Oh, and wow. so this is the this is the kind of dedication you need to make, you know, an indie film like that. So I was always in his debt for that kind of dedication. And who would have known? The, you know, the art, art, artistic qualities, although, you know, this was before LED lights and man, he used a, our power consumption at that warehouse was insane. <laughs> I mean, we were, we were running, I don't know, 50K or a lot, a lot, a lot of lights uh, to light some of the small things, but it, it gave real natural, beautiful stuff. You know, really talented guy and so exciting for all the great movies he's done since. Oh my God. Yeah. It follows and us. It and, follows yeah, a great movie. Yeah. I love it follows so much. Yeah. No, yeah. it was, it was exciting to get him on the show. He, and, and it, but it, I have to say, uh, maybe this is too obvious already, but when he came on, like the one, the number one thing was like, Oh my God, I got to talk about John dies at the end. Now he told me, and also Chase Williamson told me that you guys had kind of an unusual schedule on that where you would, you know, shoot for two weeks and then take some time off or something. Like, I, I don't remember exactly what it was, but there were, there were gaps in the shoot. What was the reason for that? Well, it's, it's really simple because I don't care about, well, maybe, you know, I haven't had the luxury of working on a hundred million dollar budget. In fact, my biggest film to date money-wise was The Beastmaster. But my sense is that anytime you're making a movie, you get on the set and maybe you haven't quite figured things out. And a lot of the stuff that you really need isn't there. Mm -hmm. And to make that happen and fix, you need to take the time and figure it out. And you need to get the shit that you need to make the scene work. Yeah, and yeah. again, that just comes back to time. And now I, I learned and on accident. See, when we were shooting Phantasm, I really wanted to try to just shoot the film in a straight schedule. And we made a valiant effort and got about eight days in and just completely crashed and burned production-wise and had to shut down for two weeks and then started shooting on weekends. And so you'd finish Sunday night, you'd have Monday to return the gear and rest. And then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you'd be scouting and planning and uh, getting all your shit in order to make the sequences that you wanted to make. And then uh, you'd, you'd just work like hell for two days and start the thing over. And that worked beautifully on Phantasm. Like I said, Beastmaster didn't have that opportunity. But, you know, a few movies later, when, coming back to John Dies, I had this idea, which was, couldn't we possibly make it on an intermittent basis? And so we hired 
the the beauty of making that was that you had to get your key actors like Chase Williamson and Rob Mays. And we basically hired them, I think, for 17 weeks on the lowest of low SAG budgets. Yeah. So they had an income and they were happy because they were struggling actors. Chase was and, like one uh, year out of college at the time, right? Didn't he just graduate you know, from college? Chase had shot nothing except like a YouTube project video. And then it worked out. We got Paul Giamatti, who was uh, just a wonderful ad for the project. And Chase had to shoot his first two days with Giamatti. And each day was like six pages of dialogue. Oh, so wow. uh, it was really shocking. But, you know, the other thing you got to say about Paul is that he's a really cool guy. And he came over to my house and worked with Chase for few days beforehand and they had those Chinese it was that Chinese restaurant scene yeah and they had that all figured out but uh, some of the most fun times I had on that movie was after we had finished our principal and by the way the way we did the intermittent was we'd shoot about we'd never shoot more than four days and some days we'd shoot three days a week which would either give us three or four days off which was mm. just a great way and uh, you know we ended up shooting over about a 10-week period but it was it was, you know, maybe about 32 days total, but we had the time to get ready for everything. But the other thing, which I always try to build into my uh, budgets is to pick up because it mm -hmm. just feels like you need to work with the movie and look at it and see where your strengths and weaknesses are and then have the ability to go back and improve those with additional shots, you know, additional angles or you know, scenes that you just couldn't do during principal and you had to just throw off to the end. And those, those scenes that go onto the production board, like something like, yeah, one day we're going to figure out how to shoot that scene. Um, <laughs> and, and one of those was the meat monster sequence. You know, we oh had this, God, mon such this a great monster sequence. made of meats. And, you know, uh, while we did have a few digital effects, which are really beautiful that our team, our team, I use that loosely, we had a couple of independent effects guys who really helped out beautifully where they animated some like pieces of trout and frankfurters moving up <laughs> along the guy's back. But the bulk of that meat, I mean, to, to, for the audience who hasn't seen the movie, basically John and, uh, John and Dave get trapped in a basement uh, where the doorknob is locked. Uh, I won't go into how they lock the door, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, you def like definitely they see the movie to see how they, how they make a doorknob <laughs> that cannot be opened. Yeah, that my favorite line of the movie. That door cannot be opened. <laughs> anyway, a th there's a chest freezer that starts to rumble, and it opens up, and these pieces of freezer meat come flying out. Then they start zipping around the floor and assembling themselves, and stand up and become a you know a fully articulated monster. So we had the the pieces of meat. There were all these little pieces of rubber meat, and then we had this gorgeous freaking costume designed by Bob Kurtzman of the final meat monster. But this transitional sequence of making the meat come together basically required me, the producer, Brad Baru, Mike Giolakis, and one other person, I can't remember who it was, one of our loyal crew members, like four of us, on the floor of that basement, puppeting pieces of meat with fishing line. <laughs> and so we're like, you know, and using, you know, experimenting with different frame rates, you know, of, yeah. you know, pulling them across. And then uh, we had a really cool little skateboard dolly that we could put the camera on and, you know, and follow pieces of meat. And so you'd have like three guys pulling pieces of meat in sequence and uh, great fun. Best part of making that movie for sure. 
And it's a perfect example, I think, of what I'm talking about, where that meat monster, when fully realized, is this terrifying yes. wad of extremely threatening meat, but it's got like yeah. sausages for fingers and it's got a, <laughs> you know, a, a chicken for a head and stuff like that. And it's kind of hard to look at it and not think it's funny, but also if I were in the room with that, I'd be terrified. Absolutely. In fact, that 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 costume was so detailed that the other hand that's sort of in the shadow and I kicked myself for not getting more light onto it. The the whole arm was a complete uh, pineapple baked ham with the slices <laughs> of pineapple on it. It was oh, amazing. God, awesome. Yeah. I mean, let's talk about some of your other work. I, I, I wish that you had a Don Coscarelli movie for every year of, uh, of existence. But, uh, you know, the, the previous film you made before that was Bubba Hotep, which yeah. also I saw in the theater. And actually, I recently rewatched it, I think, on Amazon Prime. And again, a terrifying movie, but also hilariously funny. So funny. And, you know, casting Bruce Campbell in the lead, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, kind of guarantees humor. But also you worked with Ozzie Davis, who's, you know, just one of the greats, like just such an amazing uh, character actor. Oh, well, Ozzie's a, he, he's, he's a legend. I mean, he was not only just an actor, he was a, a, a director in his own right and a, a writer, historian and social activist. So the, the guy uh, had quite a life. And uh, in fact, I just recently was watching his March on Washington, where he was the uh, he was the MC of the 1963 oh, wow. March on Washington. He was also gave the eulogy at Malcolm X's funeral. So I didn't know that. Oh, very, my God. Very rich career. So you can only imagine what it was like for him to be cast opposite Bruce Campbell. And I'm not exactly sure he knew who Bruce was, to tell you the no. truth. But both of them had this working class ethic and they developed a rapport off screen that, you know, kind of a no, neither one of them, both of them are kind of no bullshit types of guys. And they, they related based on that, getting the job done. And, uh, and you could, I think you kind of see a camaraderie between them and the characters. But uh, last thing on Aussie, we had a scene, Ben, it was just like out of that great Ed Wood movie which is mm. one of my favorites, uh, where you had Martin Landau fighting that rubber octopus and bringing <laughs> yeah. it to life. And only as a great actor can do, can to breathe life into a rubber prop. Well, I had the same experience with Ossie Davis fighting this rubber mummy down on the grass, <laughs> like his life depended on it. And at first you're like, going, this is ridiculous. But then he's like screaming and, you know, fighting the thing with all his you know, with everything he's got, it was uh, amazing to behold. And I think that, you know, that that movie visually for you, the, I, I don't know, I, I can't really describe it, but there was a, a shift in the visual approach to it. And maybe it was just because it was driven by the material itself, you know, because I mean, again, it's it, it's Elvis and a man who believes he's JFK fighting a mummy in an old age home, you know, uh, so and, and the mummy is terrifying and it's killing other residents and it's it's a scary mummy. But the very premise of it is hilariously funny and it kind of walks that line. But there's sort of a matter of factness to your photography of it. It, it was like reading a great novel. It just kind of let me sit there and, and soak it in a lot. Well, no question, because they're trying to make those uh, performances and, and a lot of the, the dialogue came from uh, the original short story by Joe Lansdale. As a real, uh, if you haven't read any of his work, he's, he's great. You know, really trying to, to tell the story as best as possible. I, I think, you know, one of the biggest challenges, of course, was we needed to establish that Elvis had hit bottom because yeah. as the story tells it, you know, he had gotten tired of the merry-go-round of being Elvis Presley and he wanted to get get off that. And he, and he made a deal with a, one of the best Elvis impersonators and they met up at this carnival in the Southwest and they switched, switched places. 
Uh, and by the way, it, it harkens back to all the great stories from back to the Prince and the Pauper. I love switching places stories. And so <laughs> thinking that, you know, the real Elvis uh, then made a life for himself traveling the Southwest, working as an Elvis impersonator. I mean, how cool that is. And living in a trailer park and drinking beer and having uh, barbecues with the trailer park residents, you know, living the life that Elvis was denied because of his fame. Uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a really sad story. I, I, I look back on Elvis's, you know, he he had, a, if you read between the lines, there was some heroism there in Elvis. The way he, he was, even despite how popular he was, so respectful. He had those Southern manners, you know. So that's the setup. And then as the story goes, he, he gyrates a little too much, throws his hip out and falls off stage at some festival. And, you know, 20 years later, we find him in an old folks home, just discarded. And so we had to make that old folks home look really bad. Now, I don't know if you've been to a senior care center lately. I, have, I think I, I think they're 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 getting better depending on the amount of money you have to spend to be in them. But I, I remember in the, you know, when I was a kid visiting my grandmother and the place was kind of terrifying to me and uh, to be warehoused like that. I think that's, you know, we just discard our elderly, you know, who we should cherish. And and there there, there was that that subtext in the movie. But we needed to find and make it look like he was really in the worst possible place, which was this Mud Creek Shady Rest <laughs> home. So, you know, I was working with the production designer, Danny Vecchioni, who's now a DP in his own right, and uh, his art director, Justin Zaharczuk, and, and Adam Gennaro, the uh, cinematographer, to make this place look really grim. And I mean, we went th with the darkest texture on the walls, almost to the point where I thought, oh, this is way too much. And then just keeping it really grimly lit. Uh, and then maybe, you know, once Elvis started to get his mojo back to then start to, you know, brighten it up a little bit. So that was the challenge, certainly visually. Did you shoot that under the same kind of schedule that you were describing for John Dies at the end where, you know, four days on, you know, four days off, whatever? Unfortunately not. I think the best trick I could do on that one was to start midweek, which again, aspiring filmmakers out there always start on a Wednesday because then you only work. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, you get two days off. And then you can, you know, in your first week, you only shoot those three days. The bottom line is if you do that, you get more weekends spread apart your, yeah. throughout your schedule. And so uh, that, that was the only trick there. Although we did do a lot of pickup shooting. Um, and, and an interesting thing is uh, we've got Bruce Campbell's stuntman, uh, John Casino was his name. Like we did that whole sequence on the uh, wheelchair fight with the mummy. Like we had shot one seat, one shot with Bruce, but then, you know, watching it, we really need to like have those guys duke it out. I had none of those shots. And surprisingly, this great benefit of having Elvis, if you take a stunt, stuntman who looks sort of like Bruce Campbell and you put on the wig, the glasses and the mutton chops and the old age makeup, it, you know, it for stunt action, it, it worked pretty well. Oh, cool. And so we get some shots there. So that was good. Could you, I, I mean, I feel like this is like a, a real inspiration for filmmakers talking about taking time off between your shooting days, which is something that we're yeah. never allowed to do. Never, ever, oh. ever allowed to do. You know, uh, the, the first movies I ever worked on were uh, shot, you know, uh, out of town uh in i was working in the southeast in like alabama and those were all six day a week shoots like if you were yeah. not 
in the in the city where the production was based it was always six day a week but five day a week is is pretty de rigueur and i know that it's not a normal way to do it it's not conventional but it sounds like a brilliant thing can you tell me like what are you doing on the on the down days because i I assume you're you're oh who who me oh well first off you got to take a day to like regroup and rest a little bit so usually that's you know you wake up and if if you've got dailies available to look at or you're you know you've got your drives and you can watch what you've shot so you kind of do that laying on the couch and then the next day it's it's really heavy into making sure the script's right and any kind of visual effects and then it's also possible you know a lot of times you can't you know the actors don't want to do anything but at least you can get them on the phone and start talking about what you're going to do over the weekend and how Mm -hmm. that's going to happen and uh you know it just gives every other department a chance to uh catch up problem is of course is it just doesn't work into in the union structures you know unless you could you could build down days and that just i don't think that it, it makes any sense there so in a way it only works if you're doing an indie movie with friends and where you're, you've got crew, you know, who are, are trying to make a name for themselves. And they, you know, if they're only employed three or four days a week, they're okay. They can survive on that. So that's the challenge. I think it's yeah. not practical otherwise, unfortunately. But it also sounds, it sounds like the, it would have the potential to eat up budget if you're not careful. Yeah. Absolutely true. Although, look, if I was, uh, if I had the resources of uh, some of my other uh, director pals, uh, <laughs> I would do a modest budget on that. You know, you could still. I mean, if you had five to ten million to make a movie, uh, well, let, let me say seven to ten million dollars. I think you you could do it on that on a simple movie. You know, mm-hmm. if it's mostly people talking and not too much in the visual effects, you'd probably build in some off days. I bet. You know, I, and, I've done that actually on Phantasm 2. We had a little more rigid crew and we shot over Christmas. And I think we just built in the contract. Everybody, actors included, everybody wanted to take three weeks off for Christmas. So yeah. we shot for like two weeks and then stopped for three weeks and then started up. That was another good good way to do it. Yeah, I worked on a project that did that once too. I was second unit and we uh, we, we shot right up to uh, the week before Christmas. And then we came back at the end of January and it was interesting, you know, but. Uh, oh, yeah, sure. Wow. Yeah. That I mean, sounds great. I, I think it had more to do with like somebody had to spend their budget by, you know, the end of the fourth quarter and or had to say that they'd started shooting in the previous year. Because I, when I started, I was like, man, you got you have to budget in a, a wrap and, and a prep, an extra yeah. wrap and an extra prep in this entire shoot. Yeah. Like that just sounds like a nightmare yeah. to me. But so I, I definitely also want to talk about Phantasm. I, I think the first interview I ever read with you was in probably Fangoria magazine when I was a teenager. And it was about Phantasm 2. And it was about uh, the scene with the spheres that that pierced through people's heads and how you had edited it exactly the way that you had edited uh, one of them in in the first Phantasm and you got an X rating and had to go cut it down. They weren't allowing you, the MPA wouldn't let you keep it the way it was. But uh, obviously there's a huge budget jump and and a huge even just experience jump in you between making those movies. Can you talk about sort of the the evolution of, of yourself kind of through those movies at all? Well, it was uh, during that period with between Phantasm 2. I'm trying to think. Well, I shot the Beastmaster, and that was <laughs> yeah. a nightmare. And then uh, I made a movie called Survival Quest and worked with another. You know, I, I've had the, the joy to work with some great directors of photography because I got to work with Darren Okada. Bottom line is uh, I made this wilderness film called Survival Quest. And uh, my friend Roberto was going to start filming that, but he was also a producer on that and decided he couldn't shoot it. So he brought Darren in to shoot it and it worked, and it worked beautifully. He did a beautiful job. And then Darren 
uh, who had been the grip on Phantasm One shot Phantasm Two, and so it was a much more organized fashion where where we had you know much more professional crew, much, you know ten times the budget of the original Phantasm. Uh, still, it was under three million at the total, but it was a lot of money to spend, and we got professional visual effects and uh, and big lighting and we could you know we we lit up that we had this this scene that I'd always wanted to do which was what a graveyard would look like after the tall man had ransacked it and we cr built this graveyard and in one day a guy with a backhoe just dug like 200 empty graves and uh, wow then uh, got this, this, it was a beautiful crane shot that Darren designed where we followed our heroes walking through and then you pulled up over them. This was all at night and lit and it was beautiful. The kind of things I could never, you know, accomplish on the first movie. So it was uh, quite exciting. And I mean, like you've kind of kept a, a good continuity on those Phantasm movies uh, throughout. Like if, if someone were to sit down and watch all of them in a row, like there was one cast switch, but for the most part, it's the same two guys in the cast, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, in the in the leads. And then obviously, uh, is it Ag Agnes or Angus? Angus, Angus, Angus. Yeah, Angus Scrim. Yeah, the entire cast was pretty consistent, except for that Phantasm 2, James Legros took over for one movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but, uh, and, and I think that's what, made it wonderful for me and probably different from the other horror series because they tend to you know have a whole new cast or and then sometimes bring in a new villain um yeah. but in any case uh, yeah that that consistency was great which uh which again you know it is weird how phantasm went for full circle because we made phantasm one on a shoestring which is basically friends and students you know just working for a year to make something interesting on one, and then we had a full budget on Phantasm Two and could do something professional. That pretty much held over into Phantasm Three. We still had a pretty sizable budget, but then parts four and five, it was like going back to the roots and shooting them guerrilla style. Phantasm yeah. uh, Four with uh, Chris Coman, another terrific DP, and Chris, we were able to do that on a very tight budget, and then uh, Phantasm Five, which was maybe the most fun of all of them. I didn't end up directing it, but uh, it was, was shot over Ravager? like a, Ravager. was shot over like an eight-year period. Whoa! Where it start, started as tests, where uh, this uh, very talented, uh, his day job's an animating director and supervisor named David Hartman, and Dave has this ethic, which is another thing, you know, when you talk to aspiring filmmakers out there, it's like, make movies. Like, Dave goes out and makes a movie every weekend. If he gets a new piece of software or a new lens, he makes a little short every weekend, and he's always flexing his muscles. And he, and he came to me and he said, um, Don, let's go out and shoot a Phantasm movie this weekend. You know, and I, you know, I'd made four of them and I'm sitting around and I'm like going, well, that might be fun. Let's do it. You know, and I, and I called up Reggie Bannister, the actress, and he would you want to get involved in this really little like a weekend thing? And he says, yeah, hey, come up. I'm, I'm up in the mountains. Come up. We shoot it at my cabin. And so we went and we shot and it was so much fun. I think it was like six people. And, and then the bulk of that movie, by the way, we started, I think, in 2000. What year was it? Like 11. It was shot with a uh, Sony EX3 camcorder basically and what it taught me on I mean people can can criticize the photography on the movie but really taught me that man you can really be camera neutral in terms of 
it's so much about number one, location. If you got the right location at the right time of day, you can shoot with anything. I was going to say with an iPhone, but iPhones are great nowadays. I know. Uh, well, and there have been yeah. at least at least two movies that have been theatrically released that I know of that were shot on the iPhone: Tangerine and Unsane. Yeah great movies both of them yeah uh but in any case so we shot that movie uh total student film style where we shoot for a weekend and then dave will, oh yeah how about we do a scene where reggie meets this girl and we go okay do you have, <laughs> uh, yeah i have an actress great let's next weekend let's go do it and so we did this for a period of time and then um i had to stop and went do and to do john dies at the end for a couple of years and then i was thinking what do we because i always thought maybe we'd do a you know, web series with, I don't know. And then uh, a few years later, we got together and finished it. And uh, again, over about, I don't know, eight more weekends to uh, finish that. And, and, you know, the, the you know movie has some flaws because of the budget, but man, it's got some epic stuff that Dave was able to pull to it. And it was just so much darn fun because, you know, what was I doing? I was gaffing. You know, I was doing I was doing the boom. I was doing the blood effects with uh, Reggie's wife, Gigi Bannister. You know, I, I got my hands in everything. And, and that's I think that's one of the things I resist most most about the, the way that professional movies are made is how the job categories are, are, are so stratified, mm. you know, and you can't have any it loses a, 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 the sense of fun that, you know, that whole ethos. Of, hey, let's go out and make a movie this weekend is so yeah on a, on a union show i once got uh, yelled at by the line producer for moving <laughs> for moving a c-stand because i was you know I was, I was second unit director so the god director, forbid you should try to help you know yeah. I mean. <laughs> they're like if if we needed more people to move c-stands we'd hire more people yeah whatever. yeah oh thank you sir <laughs> the last thing that i, I really want to talk to you about is uh your book true indie life and death in uh, filmmaking which so you wrote the book uh Two, two, three years ago, like what, what led you to decide to write a book about what you do? I, I just started writing chapters about the worst experiences my, in my filmmaking career. <laughs> All and worst it, it was, <laughs> And it was so cathartic, honestly, to get it down on paper. But uh, then later, uh, you know, once the, the bot, you know, I, it started to come together. I could just sit down and, and, and I came up with a format that was pretty easy and, and uh, readable because I just re read a uh, biography by Chris Jericho, the WWE wrestler. And it was great because he would just tell the stories in like one page and they just have a chapter about like one story and build up to the stage. So I really found a, a theme and kept the chapters pretty short to use that. that. And so I wrote the book. And uh, yeah, it was it was really well received, thank God. And the um, I think the interesting part about it, you know, they never really pushed it as much as they should. I thought it would be a really good you know textbook for aspiring filmmakers because I certainly am very blunt about all the mistakes that I made in the process. And believe me, I made a lot of them, and uh, so they're all in there. You know, it was kind of weird. I, I you know I'm still planning and plotting other films and uh, hopefully uh, some of those are going to come into fruition in a very short time. But uh, you know, it kind of felt kind of early in my career to do it, but you know, I I, I did it and it was fun and interesting. <laughs> no, that's great. No, well and uh, thank you so much for coming on here. Before we go, is there any place people can find you online? Uh, yeah, um, you can find me at uh, at Don Coscarelli on Twitter, uh, the same on Instagram, and I have a Facebook page just under my name, Don Coscarelli. So you gotta got to learn how to spell Coscarelli, which could be a challenge. But if you master that, you can find me on all of the <laughs> sources. But hey, Ben, this has been a fantastic time, and I just want to tell you that... Uh, 
cinematography is why I got into making movies. And so much of making movies is not cinematography. It's writing, it's, it's salesmanship, it's promotion and marketing and, you know, getting the ability to make your movies. And yet the thing that I love is lenses and film and camera since I was a kid. And so yeah, I, I love what you're doing and I'll continue to listen. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. So that was Don Coscarelli. Thanks again so much for coming on, Don. If uh, my fanboyness uh, wasn't on full enough display, I just I, I can't say enough good things about his work. I'm a giant fan of John Dies at the End, and Ilya, you can attest that when we uh, had uh, Mike Giolakis in, all I wanted to talk about was John Dies at the End, and you had to be like, no, no, you have to talk about It Follows, and you had to like beat me with a <laughs> with a with a bag full of oranges to get you, me to you've do. Still got the, you've still got the lower back bruises from that too. No, I mean that's the beauty when you beat someone with a bag full of oranges is it doesn't leave any marks or it kills them it's one or the other uh, as, as david mamet has uh, proven <laughs> and uh also i kind of want to do just a minor shout out to uh video palace the podcast that i mentioned earlier actually stars chase williamson who was discovered by don coscarelli and who was the star of john dies at the end and he literally landed that role like right after he graduated from acting school i think he went to usc and like right out of college, he got that role and it was like, uh, congratulations, you're hired uh, here. Go do a bunch of scenes with Paul Giamatti. You, you know what? I have to take two steps back, though. I just realized uh, it wasn't David Mamet who proved a bag full of oranges could cause uh, temporary painful looking bruises that didn't cause any real damage. That was actually from The Grifters. And that was written by Donald E. Westlake. And it was based oh. on a, a 1963 novel of the same name. Uh, and of course, it starred John Cusack and Angelica Houston and directed by Stephen Frears. Because, you know, uh, Martin Scorsese, you know, it, it, you know, just a little movie called The Grifters. But that, that was at the bag full of oranges. That, uh, yeah. And and uh, I'm just going to let it go that I, I just kind of rolled with it, <laughs> thinking like maybe you'd seen a David Mamet thing that I hadn't seen, even though no, I'm, no, I'm, no, kind, no. I'm kind I, of a David I, in, Mamet fan. In, in my in my brain, I transposed uh, The Grifters and House of Games, and uh, that's that's how that went down. So Interesting. House of <laughs> Games, great movie. And now, short ends. Let, let's rein it back in. Ben, you want to you talk about uh, your short end this week? I, I yeah. have no idea what you're going to talk about. I know we haven't. We, usually uh, we discuss these things and I, I haven't discussed it. I wanted to come up with something that was a little bit of the Halloween season. And I think I've got a good one. Arrow Video, they're a Blu-ray and DVD distributor of kind of interesting, sometimes surprisingly mainstream, but also like way out cult films. They have started a streaming service just called Arrow. And I think it's pretty damn awesome. Mm. Uh, I, I okay. subscribed to it a couple of weeks ago. They've got, you know, a, they have like, uh, like I'm just kind of scrolling through it right here. Like the top thing they have is the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And, and then a horror movie I keep hearing great things about. And I have not seen it yet. It was made by a family, like mm. a, a, a father, daughter and wife, I believe was the team called The Deeper You Dig. I've been hearing nothing but raves about it. People keep saying it's awesome. You know, and then they have like something called Microwave Massacre and Driller Killer, uh, Bloody <laughs> Birthday. You know, they've, they've, this is so up your up your alley. I can yeah. Tell. And then like they have. OK, so check this out. They have a whole subcategory of Edgar Wright selects. So Edgar Wright. You know, the the director of uh, obviously Shaun of the Dead, uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the world, you know, uh, Hot Fuzz, like an amazing, amazing director. And so, uh, baby and so driver. Uh, some of these movies I don't I haven't heard of. Like one is called What Have You Done to Solange? Never heard of it. 
Mm. Uh, but I would okay. watch it just based on that recommendation. Audition, have seen it. Reanimator, not only have I seen it, but Stuart Gordon was my short end one week. Blood and Black Lace, the original Hellraiser, uh, John Landis's debut feature Schlock. Cat of Nine Tails, which I believe is Dario Argento. So there's really amazing stuff on here, and it's very curated. And it's something that I've often uh, said that I loved about Shudder. Full disclosure, I worked for them on Video Palace, but uh, I'm not being paid to say anything nice about Shudder, but I think Shudder is a great service. And and what I love about Shudder is that it's heavily curated, meaning that you're not going to like everything on Shudder, but you're going to realize everything that's there is there because somebody at Shudder loved it. And Arrow is exactly like that, but it's got a different angle. You know, they they have a different point of view, but but it's kind of similar cult and Halloween kind of stuff. So so definitely, if you're looking for a cool Halloween uh, thing to do, right in line with Don Coscarelli. Although I don't know if they have any Don Coscarelli movies. Didn't see his name on there. Wouldn't be surprised if they had Phantasm or any of his any of his stuff on there. But uh, definitely check it out. And also, if you have Shutter, I do believe John Dies at the End is on Shutter. And I know the Phantasm 4K restoration is on uh, Amazon Prime, I believe. Oh, and by the way, uh, it, it came up in the interview, but the whole reason that the interview with Don Coscarelli came about was because of our producer, Alana Cody, when uh, we brought up the website that Don Coscarelli had set up to try and track down the negative for the original Beastmaster. She thought that was an interesting story and wanted to bring him on. And when we were interviewing him and it was said in the interview, they have kind of given up on trying to find the negative, but they did find a pristine interpositive. So they are going to be making a brand new uh, transfer uh, or they maybe have already made a brand new transfer right off of the interpositive. That is wonderful news. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that for all of the uh, Beastmaster fans that exist and the ones that are sure to come after seeing it. So Ilya, what is your short end? I love to try to stay away from technology, but this one, I, I have to go back to technology because very recently, just in the last few weeks, there's a new mirrorless camera that shoots really, really incredible photos as well as really, really incredible 4K full motion video up to 30 frames a second. And it's from a company that I'm, I'm quite fond of called Panasonic, and it's the Lumix S5. The Lumix S5 is a full frame camera. I know that'll get your attention. I'm, I'm way into full frame cameras. That's true. But the body is super small. It's about the size of their four thirds sensor cameras. So uh, it, it weighs very little. But the sensor inside of it, and that really is the heart and the soul of any camera system out there. If you want to know what's responsible for the for the quality and the look, I mean, you can't just say it's only the sensor, but without the sensor, everything else uh, fails. And they have really, really smart electronics that back up that sensor. But this sensor is the same sensor that's in their flagship $4,000 camera. And this camera is half the price. So they made a smaller body, half the price. And they actually do a kind of a a clever starter kit with a 20 to 60 millimeter full frame lens. It's not particularly fast, but it will get you shooting immediately. And everything's under $2,300, doesn't have expensive media, and it has the full dynamic range and all the fun stuff that that flagship, super high end, super premium camera has. You you miss out on a couple of things, like it's a different size HDMI connector. And there's there's a couple other very minor things they've removed. But for someone out there who's like, I don't have $4,000 to spend on a camera, I can't possibly justify that. But if you got $2,000, you can pretty much get the same visual performance and it'll be smaller and lighter and everything else. And in a couple of ways, it actually is is more advanced. It has better stabilization and some slightly better autofocus. And 
that sort of thing. So we'll put a link in the show notes. Of course, you can get it over at Hot Ride Cameras. And we have a demo over there too. So if someone wants to come by and check it out, it is sort of like the little camera that could. There's a lot of new cameras. And a few weeks back, I talked about all the new cameras that are that are coming out. This is one of those new cameras that is further pushing that uh, price and performance. And there's other wonderful cameras out there that are similar price, maybe a little bit less, a little bit more. But uh, this one, I think, will actually tick a lot of boxes for people just because the fact that it it really is that super high-end performance and a real bargain price. That sounds awesome. I I would love to check that camera out because I've been kind of looking to upgrade a full-frame camera. Well, uh, this is a really good one. You should uh, definitely at least uh, put it in your hands and play with it a little bit. There's a couple other cameras out there that are absolutely worth looking at at the same time, but not to take anything away from the, the, you know, not stealing the thunder of uh, the S5 by by diluting and talking about some other cameras. I'll talk about those in, in future short ends, but anyone who's considering a $2,000 camera from any manufacturer right now really should look at this one because the performance is, is absolutely uh, first rate world class absolutely competes with everything. Wow. Cool. That's awesome to hear. Well, um, I think that uh, wraps us up for this week. I think so too. Let's uh, where can people find you, Ben? Uh, Please go to benrockonline.com. I recently uh, kind of streamlined it. I made it easier. There there was some stuff that Squarespace was doing that seemed cool, except it's, it bogged down for some people. And I was like, I'm getting rid of that stuff. So go check out benrockonline.com. Tell me what you think. Also, I put my new manager's info on there. So if you want to like go there and uh, send an email to my manager, it'll make me feel productive. Yeah. How about yourself? Where can people find you? You can find me over at Hot Ride Cameras. And also, I'm going to plug LinkedIn this week. For some reason, I've had a lot of uh, people requesting to join my network. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, there's a lot of people reaching out to me there lately. You can find me because I think I'm one of only three Ilya Friedmans. But uh, it, it, you'll you'll know which one it's me. I'm the only one in Burbank, Can California. I say something a little controversial? Yeah. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is pretty good. I know everyone makes fun of LinkedIn. It's like the the Nickelback of social media. It's easy to make fun of, but I, I've I've kind of grown to like uh, LinkedIn and Nickelback for that matter. Well, but you but have mo- not grown to like Nickelback. That's true. That's that's not happened. That's you're, true. You're, you're making a joke. Uh, I, I am making a joke, but I'm I, well. You know, Nickelback is just kind of the easy punchline. You know, I bet if we went to a Nickelback concert, if we went to a Nickelback concert when you're allowed to go to concerts, we'd have a good time. And we'd be like, "Hey, those are pretty good musicians." And I'm not familiar with any of their music, so it doesn't matter. Regardless, um, regardless, I I think LinkedIn isn't bad. I've I've been using it a lot more lately, and uh, the manager who I just signed with, uh, we met on LinkedIn. I got nothing against LinkedIn. Way to go, LinkedIn. When we did our, our Indiegogo campaign for 20 Seconds to Live, 10% of our haul came from LinkedIn, and I wasn't even really using LinkedIn at that time. You know, I, I, I'll I give LinkedIn some props, but there is a certain level of, like, spam people who want to connect with me just to spam me. And uh, if you're that person, uh, you you will be uh, unlinked really quickly. Also, <laughs> so. I want to say this. I broke down after years of LinkedIn trying to get me to try LinkedIn Pro, and they give mm-hmm. you a month of it for free, but you have to mm-hmm. give them your credit card. And I was like... Okay, I feel like what they rely on is that you forget that you authorized it and it goes on and on and on forever. So I was like, let me see, let me check out LinkedIn Pro for a month. And I set a, a calendar alert for the day, like exactly uh, one day before a month later. So I could delete, uh, remember to delete it unless I was in love with it, then I'd keep it. But it's because it's a little expensive. It's like, I think 30 bucks a month. That's a little. Well, it's professionally priced. Yeah, yeah. Neat, whatever. <laughs> so I tried it for a month. Uh, didn't care for LinkedIn Pro. I think regular old free LinkedIn is just Jim Dandy, and I don't think I need. I don't think most people probably need the Pro. I have never tried the Pro, but uh, so far really enjoying uh, regular LinkedIn and some of the cool connections that I've I've 
people have found me and looked me up and mentioned the podcast and that's all wonderful. So I think this makes us both dorks. Anyway, uh, <laughs> all right, enough social media talk. Uh, let's thank some people. Well, first off, let's thank uh, Alana Cody, who busted her ass to get Don Coscarelli to come on the show. It was honestly a dream I'd had since I was like 15 to ever be able to talk to Don Coscarelli. He did not disappoint. Super nice guy. And even went so far as to send me a DVD for one of his films that I hadn't seen after our interview was over. So thank you, Alana. Class act. Class Class act act. all the way. 100%. Uh, okay, let's thank uh, editor Ben Katz, who's going to be putting together the YouTube version of Don Coscarelli for our uh, YouTube channel here shortly. That's going to be the first one uh, that, that you guys will have seen. It's a little bit different. It's basically allows you to listen to this podcast on YouTube. And if you do happen to glance up at the screen, there might be like a waveform moving around or, you know, uh, a picture of our guest or, you know, uh, Ben's mug. I mean, or my it's Don mug. Coscarelli. It should be yeah. one of the flying spheres that sucks all the blood out of your head. Come on. <laughs> there'll be there'll be other little bits in there ben katz is doing a great job putting that that together i saw the the like a preview that he, he put he he made but by the time this goes live uh we should also have the youtube version up there as well so it's just another way for people to like and enjoy this show excellent and uh lastly we should definitely thank Kay alatracci who probably didn't listen to this show because i don't know if he's a fan of don coscarelli's or not although he, he should be and everyone should be but uh he and i have probably never talked about it so i'm guessing it's not his speed maybe it is we'll thank him anyway even though he's not yeah listening. so you all the music you heard on the show was by Kays, and you can find him at musicbykays.com all right, Ben, I think that'll just about do it for another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Let's let's, uh, let's gracefully sign off the way we always do. Gracefully. I'm, I'm curtsying. People can't see. <laughs> Thank you. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.